Hi, John. <laughs> hey, Dan. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? How are you feeling better? Are you all healed up? <coughs> uh-huh. Well, am I feeling better? I, I'm definitely, I'm definitely experiencing hypochondria. Oh no. Well, because I spend a lot of time reading about the effects of the novel COVID-19 coronavirus. Yes, yes, yes. And so, of course, anytime I feel a little bit of, I I think, well, here it is. It's the end times. Are you out in the world very much? I mean, I go outside every day and go for a bike ride or a a long walk. Your daily constitutional. That's right. In the course of doing that, you know, I pass people on the street. We both are very careful to go around each other of course, at yeah. a six foot distance. But, but you know, the, we know so little it's possible that there are, that there are viruses hanging in the trees. Also my, you know, my daughter and her little friend across the street have, um, they've obviously been suffering, not being able to see one another for weeks. And, uh, and, my little girl learned to ride her bike a few days ago. Oh, excellent. And, and now the little girl across the street is inspired by this and is trying to learn how to ride her bike. I see. And it's it's also exciting that I've been encouraging the girl the girl across the street and so, you know, we're out there with her riding her bike. Now, if I turn around for 3 minutes, <laughs> the two little girls have thrown their bikes on the grass and are sitting under a tree. <laughs> doing whatever that witchy shit is that little girls do. (laughs) And I'm like, Hey, you guys, what the, Hey, you're not supposed to be playing and sitting there in the grass. You know, you're supposed to be either on your bikes or not hanging out. And, um, and they go, Oh, okay. And they're back on their bikes. But in the course of, of this bike riding thing, she's been with other kids, which is a thing that i definitely felt like was a vector of exposure. And so, you know, my hypochondria will Mm. latch on to the fact that in kissing my daughter, goodnight, I'm effectively kissing every kid in this neighborhood and, uh, super grossed out now. So anyway, (laughs) I'm, uh, we're all fine. But also it's allergy season. I'm in I'm in this house. It's got an oil furnace, so there's a kind of dryness to the air, kind of scratchiness. Right. Also, I don't think of myself as like as healthy as I could be. So anyway, all that is combining to make me um feel just every day like, am I okay? Am I okay? I'm checking in with myself all the time. Am I okay? And that that just is nerve-wracking. You know, Boris Johnson of the uh, of the United Kingdom Johnsons, yes, uh, is not that much older than I am, nor is he that much less healthy than I am. He's definitely less healthy than I am, probably. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, but you know, to watch people uh, that are my age, you know, the the. Uh, there, there have been a, there have been a handful of people my age, a couple of them I I know who are who have been infected. I just don't like. Anyway, how are you? Are you uh, you already have hypochondria? Yeah, so what, mean, all, how I'm, is that affecting you? I li- that's where I live. You know, um, no, I, I'm doing fine. Uh, Merlin and I were actually talking on this week's uh, back to work about. He found some article that was talking about how some people who already have anxiety and other issues maybe are even feeling better during this time. And I'll tell you, excuse me, I'm already normally like a hypochondriac. I'm much, much, much better than I used to be. I'm, I'm able to kind of set it aside now is the best way to say it, I guess. But for me, having a, you know, lifetime of kind of germophobia and, uh, and 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 just worrying about getting sick and worried that like that scratch on your arm is cancer, you know that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I'm actually not stressed out very much by this. I mean, I'm I I feel like you know people joking on on Twitter um, uh, have um, have have said I've been preparing my whole life for this because they're hypochondriacs or germaphobes or or whatever. And I kind of do feel that way. Like, but I find that I'm 
less worried about all of this stuff because I've been doing this for so long. You know, like mm. if, if, mm. if it was your first time to slide down the pole at the, at the fire station to go on your first call to put out a fire, mm-hmm. you're going to feel different than if it's your 500th time. That doesn't mean that the guy who's done it 500 times like, oh, it's old hat. I don't need to worry. No, he's still worried. He's going to put out the big fire. He could die. He knows that. Mm-hmm. But it's not his first time. And that's how I feel about all of this. I know I already know, like people are like, you can open a door using your elbow or the sleeve of your. Yeah. Welcome <laughs> to me at age six. <laughs> you know, you, you should you should pay attention to when you're holding something and when you were well, touching your face or washing your. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for the advice, pops. Like, you know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff yeah. for me. It's like. Pfft. That's not, I've, I've been thinking about that. I've mastered it. I have, I can, I can use, uh, I can, I can leave my office. I can go down a flight of stairs to the restroom, open the door, relieve myself and, and clean up and come back without even using my hands. I won't go into details. Fantastic. I can Fantastic. do without even having to uh, unbutton my, my jeans. You're a Houdini. So for me, this is like, <laughs> this is like old hat, you know, this is, yeah. but that doesn't mean I'm not concerned about it, but I sure. also I also feel like, you know, I'm like for me, there's a little small form of glee in being able to wear a, a mask around oh. because I kind of have always wanted to. So for me, it's like yeah. the, like uh, like uh, the 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 stops have been lifted, you know, and I can <laughs> I can do what I finally have wanted to do. There was a guy I saw in an airport one time. I was going to California, and and there was this guy. And he had, uh, he had a, a, a mask on, you know, like a, like a surgeon's mask. And yeah. he had, which I thought was fine. This is way before Corona. This is two years ago. Was he, he the keyboard player for the revolution? No. And, oh, he, okay. and he had on yellow dish gloves that you would use if you were washing hot dishes and you were mm. like a 1950s mom. You had that. right? He had that. Sounds like a serial killer. This yes. Guy. And he also was wearing, if I'm remembering right, he had on some kind of um, like apron or, or something else. But it was, he was in the airport walking around like this was not a, something weird to do. And I, with my, uh, the people I was traveling with, I, I said, oh, look at this guy. And they're like, oh my God. And I'm like, I'm kind of jealous. <laughs> because that's how I want to be in the airport, but I, now I could be, you know, and so right. there's that feeling of like, now I can be myself and I, I, I'm actually seeming less, I'm less Normal. stressed. I feel so bad though. Cause like my mom, she, you know, she's in her early seventies. She's in Florida. She is complete. She is in a state of terror at all times. I'm like, but mom, oh, like awful. you're not going anywhere. You're not doing, she's like, I haven't left the house in four weeks. And I'm like, well then why are you worrying? Like she's, she's worrying like it's, it's trying to bang, it's banging on the door, trying to get to her. And I'm like, but you know, mama, if, if you're not going anywhere and she's, she didn't make herself one face mask, she's made like eight by hand. And, you know, she was like, she, she like washed the, she doesn't listen to the show. She was, you know, they say to wash your produce. First of all, she only eats produce. That's all she eats anyway. But they're like, oh, you should wash the produce. And, and for some reason, she used soap on it. You're not supposed to use soap on it. So she, you know, Don Chapman said not to. So she like threw it away and then didn't have any, couldn't eat. I'm Uh-oh. like, she's like, she's like, like if she gets a package delivered, she's like isolating it for like a week in the garage. I'm like, you don't need to, but I can't tell her not to do that because, you know, she just, she can't, like somebody on the news said to do it. Right. So, well, has it ever occurred to you to make a superhero costume that actually was a um, some kind of like move through airports in in a state of like clean room? Like if you if you walk through an airport in an apron with a surgical mask and rubber gloves on, you look like a maniac. (laughs) Yes. But if you put together a some kind of suit, and I'm not saying with like (laughs) fake pecs, but like. Something that looked like it was a, a, a um, like a Comic Con cosplay. Sure. What was the what was the uh, the the fake uh, Star Trek movie with Tim Allen? Oh uh, yeah, Galaxy Quest. If you had a Galaxy Quest captain's uniform, yes. except it wasn't made to look quite that Star Trekky. If it just said like 
I don't know, Dan, or if, you know, if it was, but, but it, you were actually building it as a germ proof suit. Right. So when people asked you, and it had some kind of like, you know, face mask or whatever, if people asked you like, Hey, what's up? You'd be like, Oh, you know, I'm like doing some promotion for a space thing or whatever, but you could actually wear it in the world and, uh, and, and have it actually be your like safety suit. I, I think that there's a way, there's a route, Dan, for you to actually have a pandemic suit that you can wear all the time that somehow passes as a cosplay or passes in the real world. And so there's it's, something it's, very appealing about that, but I've, I've kind of tried to go the other way, which is to, to teach myself that it's okay. Sure, sure, um, sure. And, 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 but. I mean, this is tempting what you're saying, but like a, like a ninja costume or something <laughs> like but, tabby but, boots and all. Yeah. <laughs> and from the, and from the outside, right. People are going to look at it and be like, ha ha, look at that funny nerd. But from the inside, you're like, I am hermetically right, safe. Like I'm safe. I'm safe in here. Ha-cha! Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Pretty you, good. But like the awareness that I have of what, whether I've touched something or not, whether I then would touch my face or not, I've gotten like, I don't touch my face period unless it's like very conscious like do you, do you the idea of uh, of of touching my face without knowing about it or consciously yeah. doing it or making the decision that i'm in a safe space and i can do it now that's built into my dna so much so that like you wouldn't woman well, i don't i don't think you would you wouldn't take your, your shoes and socks off and pick your toenails while you were sitting in a, a public restaurant that wouldn't, it no. would, it would not occur to you to do that no, in the same not. way that it would not occur to me to touch my face. Well, you know, my sister many years ago, uh, because my, you know, my mom and my sister are both health adjacent, health fanatic adjacent mm. in the sense that they are not, what am I trying to say here in the be- in the nicest possible way? They go from uh, recent study to recent study, mm-hmm. uh, New York Times bestseller to New York Times bestseller, always searching, searching, searching for that magical combination of a new spirituality, the most recent developments in psychology, the the latest insights into health and nutrition and they're always you know linking these these studies they're reading and books they're reading and and actually they're not just doing it as a like uh, i found this book in an airport type of thing then they change their lifestyle to accommodate this latest thing right Mm -hmm. so you know my mom is like i am an infj or whatever and i'm now (laughs) that means that i you know she she did this in 1980 or whatever and now that means that i'm from now on when i do this i'm gonna be i'm gonna be aware of this and then (laughs) you know she's like well i read this book about fodmaps and it's you know it's because i'm allergic to nightshades that i'm not eating these and i am eating these and i've replaced this with that and then oh you know there's this new like I read this book that that we were all once Mayan warriors, and now uh, the the fact you know like our Mayan traditions mean that we blankety blank, and and so they're they're seekers, right? They're always searching for the right combination of food, exercise, science, and mm-hmm. religion. Mm-hmm. That if they can click on it, I they they are hoping that it's going to get them in the clear, right? That they're, that, that their worries are going to, are going to pass away. Their nutrition is going to be optimized. Right. I think it's all part of a, a project to live forever. I'm not, I, I'm not sure. I do not share it with them. Of course, since I'm closest to them, I am the first line of defense against the, for the rest of the world. Right. Because they direct all that energy at me. You've got to read this book. <clears throat> oh my God, you're still eating nightshades? You know, this kind of thing. But my sister years ago was like, you've got to wash your hands. Mm-hmm. Every time you can, every time you go out, every time you, you know, don't touch your face until you've washed your hands. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm, you know, I, I get sick. I get colds all the time. And so over time, because she would, 
you know, she hammered this for so many years through so many other fads. She was still like, wash your hands and don't touch your face that I started to do it. And it really reduced the, the frequency and severity of the colds that I got. Right. Sure. And I was like, whoa, it makes sense. It's not some crackpot fad involving the Mayans and a FODMAP. It is true. I touch people and then they got germs on them and then I put it in my nose. <laughs> so I have become one of those people that washes his hands all the time. Just uh-huh. like I drink a, drink a glass of water every time I walk past the sink. Well, that's nice. And when I, when I have to scratch my nose or if I have an itch in my eyebrow or whatever, I use the back of my knuckle. Right. And, uh, you know, I do not unconsciously just put my fingers. I, I was going to say you're on the, you're, you're doing all the right things there. You're, you followed, uh, you took the class. The one problem, Dan, is that I bite my fingernails. And so it all goes to shit. Yeah. Because as a fingernail biter, uh, it's just the finger right in the mouth. So all day long, I'm very consciously, you know, itching my eyebrow with the first knuckle of my thumb. Mm-hmm. And then I, then I like go and chew on the cuticle. It's like fuck. But if you wash your hands really well with the little scrub brush that I know you have, mm. then I think it's fine. Mm. You make those. I do. You want know, you want to bite your nails? It's fine. Do take 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 this little extra step, and you'll be good. I'm sick a lot less. So in that sense, I feel pretty good that you know that I keep my hands. Oh, I always I, I always washed. love when people without any kids are like, "Well, I never get sick. I get one cold every two or three years." I'm like, "Mm-hmm. This way, <laughs> this way." <laughs> We would like to say thank you very much to our first sponsor today. It is Audible. But Audible is doing something different. I know you know them from making really great audiobooks available to pretty much everybody in the world, but they're doing some other really cool stuff right now. They have a new show. It's not a podcast, it is a scripted audio comedy. It's written by John Lutz of SNL and 30 Rock, and it stars Paul Rudd and a ton of other people in something called Escape. From Virtual Island. So Rudd's character is joined by Jack McBrayer, Paula Pell, Amber Ruffin, and a bunch of other really funny people. This is a crazy comedy adventure. It's set on a remote luxury island in the year 2038. Adventure seekers go to the island to live out their wildest fantasies in custom-made virtual reality simulations. But an important guest goes missing. And then a, a search party led by Paul Rudd has to go out and uh, I don't want to spoil it for you, so I'm not going to tell you anymore, but I will tell you that it's very funny and very entertaining and it's a new kind of entertainment for us. And I think it's really cool. Escape from Virtual Island. Very cool. And you can listen for free with a 30-day trial. Go to Audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E. Everybody knows how to spell Audible. Audible.com slash Virtual Island. Audible.com slash Virtual Island. Or you can text Virtual island to 500 500 because people apparently like signing up by texting stuff so do that too virtual space island to 500 500 or do what i did and go to audible.com slash virtual island we sure do appreciate the support of audible thanks very much to them for making this show possible the crazy thing about that thing that you're talking about where introverts and social you know like social distancers uh, Seattle freeze people, uh, germaphobes, like a lot of us are talking to one another and saying, I've had this conversation five times in the last two days where there's that kind of guilty lowering of the voice and you can hear the smile in their, in their tone. And they're like, I like this better. I've been waiting for this for years. <laughs> right. Sure. I don't want to go back. Yeah. I don't want to go back. I don't ever want to get in my car again. I don't want to have to go to things. And I mean, I know a lot of people that are going crazy because they want to go to things and they have to go to things. Mm-hmm. But, but hearing from this, like this unusual class of people that I'm a member of and friends with where they have that, that kind of unique set of conditions where they don't actually have to go out to earn a living And they used to have to go out to earn a portion of their living. But since that whole industry is shut down, they can't. Right. And not only can't they, but no one can. 
and that glee and the and the and the conversations I've had where people are like, you know, I don't ever want to go back. This is incredible. Like the, uh, this feels like it feels like the right way and the environmentalists and so forth. And I mean, I, I, I was on the phone with a friend last night who's working two jobs. One of them is he got a job at a UPS, um, transfer station where he says he's loading 300 boxes an hour off of a conveyor belt. He's like, and he's a former Marine, you know, and he's like, this is the hardest job I've ever done. And I said, what's going on? Like you have another job. And he said, my wife is a makeup artist and she, her, her job is over. Like nobody, she, she's just like, she went from 100 to zero in a day. And he said, my other job, I got, my salary got cut in half and the boss was like, I don't know what I can tell you. You know, I can still pay you half. So he's like, I had to get another job because we went from two salaries to one half of a salary. And it, and I felt like, wow. And he actually still has a job and then he got another job. So, I mean, he's working his ass off, but he, but he has work. There's so many people that don't have any. Yeah. But I realized about the people because I was talking to a friend and she was like, you know, this is how I want to live. And when the world comes back online, I'm going to continue to live like this. Yeah. And I, I think, I, thought, I think that is a sentiment that it, she's onto something there. It is. But, but I thought about it a lot and I kind of started, it started to dawn on me. We've always had the ability to live like this, uh, us introvert, asocials, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, I'm a hyper social person when I'm forced to be, Yeah, which is most of the time. Right. But, but I have to tell you, I have not missed other people. <laughs> Just talking to Ken Jennings and he was like, the first thing I miss is eating in restaurants. The second thing I miss is going to the movies. The third thing I miss is going to, the, he, he went down this list and he got to, he got to number five and he was like, and I guess friends. <laughs> And I was like, right, right, <laughs> friends. Yeah. All coming in at number five, friends. And he hadn't even mentioned, you know, like going to shows or any, you know, or, right. or doing public, public appearances or events. But the thing is, we've always been able to do this. I could have stopped doing things six years ago. And, you know, and in a way I, I, I really cut down on doing things yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah. But I don't have to go to Max FunCon every year. Right. I don't have to go to the Joko Cruise. I don't have to do anything. Right. But the point is, the reason I'm enjoying this so much is that no one can do anything. Mm-hmm. If the world comes back online and everybody else is doing things again, Max FunCon is back on and the Joko Cruise is back on and you know, all these conferences and all these things that I have to go fly to do. If they all are happening again, I have to go do them. And it's not that I have to, it's that I don't want it to happen. I don't want all those people to be doing that. And I'm not, it's FOMO or it's a form of FOMO. It's not, it's not like, it's not FOMO. Like how am I going to get to every one of these panels at Comic-Con? It's FOMO like, if life is happening, I want to be part of life. Yeah. I don't want to not go to concerts and plays and, and even if it's a, even if it feels kind of like a, a a drag to have to put on real clothes and drag myself out of the house and go across the town to do the event. Like once you're there, you, you like it and then you're glad you did it afterwards. Right. And I would be bummed to miss it. And so I, so, so the insight, I guess, is that this shutdown feels amazing, but when the world comes back, I'm, I have to go join the world. I do not want to be, I do not want to live like this if I'm the only one doing it. Right. You, you're, you're saying you're enjoying it while it's happening here, but you wouldn't, as soon as things start back up again, you're going to be obligated to go back and be part of it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to wear a mask for a year. 
Um, and if this, <laughs> if this shutdown, if the, if the disease remains a constant threat, which I imagine it will. Yeah. Like kind of like, you know, will it, will it adapt like the flu and be a little different every year? Will it just be this one version of it always circling? I don't, I don't know. Do they know? They don't know. And you know, and maybe there will be a vaccine for it. Um, you know, I'm very concerned about dying of pneumonia. It, it seems like a thing I do not want. Yeah, it's horrible. I sounds, do not want sounds, to contract. Sounds horrible. <clears throat> and so I think for the next nine months at least, it's going to be pretty unusual to see, like, for instance, the rock concert industry just just go right back where it started. Yeah. You know, like, when's the next time, Dan, you're going to go to a rock festival? Yeah, right. Or go to a club with 1,200 other people packed together to watch a band? Yeah, no. It's, I mean, I wasn't going to I wasn't going to do that anyway, but I I know people who did that a lot who now definitely are not going to be doing that. I mean, that was, that was my life. That was my life for I mean, since 1990, that's been my life. And uh, when's, when am I going to want to do that? I can't imagine. And I can't imagine being on stage and looking out at an audience and everybody's wearing an N95 mask. No. Like that's, it's just a totally different universe. And the music industry has been headed this way for a long time. People just sitting in their bedrooms and making songs and putting them out there and, and, and everybody subscribes or so, you know, right. or pays it 99 the sound, cents to the see sound the cloud uh, thing. It's uh, it, this has been, it's been headed that way and musicians will survive uh, because musicians are like roaches. You cannot kill them. <laughs> But the concert industry, which is, I mean, a lot of my friends are in the concert industry. It's how, that's all they know. All they know. All they've ever done. For 30 years, they've been working in live music in some capacity, either as the club owner or the security or the sound engineers or, uh, you know, like the bookers, everybody. And, it, and the whole industry, I don't see... I don't see it coming back. Like when you say you don't see it coming back, do you mean in a while or do you mean like we will never again have something like that happen? The, the problem is that all of these people that I know don't, none of them have like, um, savings. They work in rock concert business, right? right? Yeah. They don't have, they don't have, they haven't been putting 20 grand away a year for the last 30 years. They're not ready to retire. In other words, right. And if the, if the, <clears throat> if the music venues and the touring industry doesn't come back in four months, if it doesn't come back in six months, um, it's not like when it does come back, all those clubs are just going to pop open full of all those same people who have just been cyrogenically frozen for a year waiting for the waiting for the, I mean, they're going to have to find something to do. They're going to have to find other jobs. They're going to have to, something's got to happen yeah. in the, in the meantime. So for instance, we, I was booked to play, um, <clears throat> I was booked to do a, a show at the thing festival, which was <laughs> supposed to happen this spring. And it's I like, the new, I like that. it's the new version of the Sasquatch festival, which shut down a couple of years ago. And right. the, the guy that put the guy that put that on, started a new festival over in, in uh, Kitsap County called thing. And I had a show booked. thing was supposed to happen <clears throat> around, uh, labor day or Memorial day, which is the first one, which is the one in the spring. Um, I always get them mixed up know, as ever. Yeah, you're the, you're the, holiday whatever one, I don't know. the may, the may one. And I, and we just got an email. It got postponed and now it's going to the end of the summer. It's, it's going to be in August now instead of May. Well, obviously, because nobody's going to go to the one in May, but will anyone go to the one in August? And, you know, this is a show that, I mean, my, I have two booking agents. The only way that they make money is that people are out playing shows and they're getting a percentage. What are they doing right now? What right. are they going to do for the next six months? Right. Anyway, and, the, and, and that's just one aspect of show business. What are stand-up comedians doing? I mean, the, 
the artist, I think, can survive because the artist just moves online and plays virtual shows. Got, uh, people that work in in recording studios, I think, can they're working with such a small group of people. It's like, okay, are, do you guys have coronavirus? No. Okay. Let's make a record. Uh, maybe, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, you're, you're trapped in a studio with each other. You're going to be breathing on each other, but you can contain it to a certain degree. You know, though, I think those people can keep working, but li- live production. I mean, think of all the theater people, all of Broadway is shut down. Well, I mean, and anyway. not to mention that, not to mention the movie theater business and big movies in general, you know, the ones that have delayed their releases, the ones that are, you know, <clears throat> thinking about if they're even going to release to a movie theater at all now. Yeah. Right. Like what, when's the next time you're going to go sit in a movie theater? So <clears throat> I, I re- there's this art, there's a editorial in the New York, uh, what is it in the New Yorker? I think maybe it's in the New York times. Somebody, you know, some East coast, uh, deep thinker <laughs> is saying, Hey, maybe this is an opportunity, right? Cause uh, you hear, you hear that a lot too. Maybe this is an opportunity. And well, they, I mean, they're, they're trying to see the bright side of all it. Well, yeah, and I, I think anytime you look at a picture of Los Angeles that's been taken in the last week where the sky is clear and you can see the stars at night, or you probably can't see the stars at night, but, you know, the pollution is has all washed out to sea. And it's like anytime there's a clear day in L.A., all the people in L.A. look up and go, whoa. <laughs> like, what if it was like this? You know, in most most of the time in Los Angeles, the people that are there have uh, have ten percent of their brain that's just filtering out the fact that <laughs> Los Angeles is incredibly polluted. Right. You know, when they look out, if they if they're driving somewhere up in the hills and they look out across the vista and they see that they cannot see into the distance, all they see is that brown, like like fog of death that's over the city. They, that 10% of their brain just like tries hard not to see it. And if you see it, you can't not see it. So you're like, Oh, Oh, that's too bad. But then you come down out of the Hills and you're down in the streets and you look up and it's a sunny day and you just pretend that it's not, you pretend that you're not living in and under a cloud of like just airborne death (laughs) and you know there are enough people that have been living in los angeles for long enough under these conditions that we all know that you don't die from it right right? and people in la are just as sort of healthy and and they just they they live as long as anybody else does and they don't there's no i don't think any greater cancer or or whatever so it's not it's not death exactly but it's one of the great things about coming to Seattle. Uh, as you come, as you, as you land in Seattle, even more powerful than the smell of aviation gasoline at the airport is you just, you're aware of the smell of pines. Mm-hmm. You can smell the pine trees immediately, you know, and you walk out after you've been away for a long time, or if you've been in LA for a while, you come to Seattle and you're like, Oh wow. The air, it just smells like, it just smells fresh and mm-hmm. Seattle's got pollution now too, but, but so you look at LA and the pollution's gone and you think, wow, that was so easy. It was so easy to accomplish. We just said, everybody stay inside. Everybody stay inside for three weeks or you'll die. And everybody went, Oh shit. All right. I don't want to die. So I'll stay inside for three weeks and the pollution's gone or mostly. And, and all of a sudden there are deer walking in the streets <laughs> and the sea lions have formed a government and, <laughs> you know, it's like the, like the world is just waiting there for us to just shut the fuck up for five minutes. Yeah. And the, and the world's like, Ta-da, we're still here. The salmon start spawning up the streams. And, and so for those of us that came up as like eighties 
70, 70s and 80s environmentalists yeah. where the the idea was all we need to do is take the take the dams down on the Elwha and the Snake River and the salmon will come back and they will feed the bears and the bears will control the population of varmints and all and the forests will return you know we really did that was what environmentalism was then global warming didn't in, didn't exist so much in our minds right and we just wanted to reforest the mountains and bring the animals back and get the ecosystem the the cycle of life restarted right because it really felt like we weren't that far from a time when all that stuff worked. Like the 20th century, the, the, the 19th and 20th centuries were a thing that we could roll back. And sure, we'd killed a lot of whales, but, but the whales could return. And maybe the passenger pigeon was gone forever, but, but uh, we, there were still some buffalo, right? A handful of them. And if we, if we treated those Buffalo well, and we took some fences down, maybe there would be, maybe they'd come back. There'd be millions again. I, I don't think anybody wants millions of Buffalo, but, and, and so lately there's just been, there's all of our hopefulness. It's all turned so apocalyptic, right? Environmentalists now don't have that, that like sunny horizon that we did in the in the 70s and 80s because it doesn't feel possible to roll it back no it doesn't if you're an environmentalist now it's all doom and gloom you just wake up every day and it's like all i'm trying to do is if every if we could change everything in the earth and i, if I could sacrifice my own life maybe we could just arrest the devastation so that 200 years from now we weren't all living in uh like like knee deep in lava right <laughs> so there's no fun in it you know it's all just like it's all just apocalypse and that's true of of so much of modern life it's like well you know we tried for years in the 70s and 80s we really believed that we were on a path to achieve racial equality mm -hmm. and to end racial bias mm -hmm. we had we'd instituted new policies the school, we had changed the way we, we, uh, thought about public housing and public nutrition. We, we changed the way the schools operate. We changed, we had made all these changes, instituted affirmative action. All of this was, there was hope in it because we felt like we could, over the course of a couple of generations, erase bias, rooted out of institutions and, and, and the premise was that people don't naturally have bias, right? You look at, at, at a bunch of six-year-olds playing together and right. you see that they they're- They all play nicely. They don't care. Yeah. They're not, yeah, all that. They're not aware of it. So right. if we could just maintain that childhood lack of bias by erasing bias in institutions and doing it by, through the law, but also through like a sense of common cause, in a couple of generations, we can erase bias and we will, and it's just like my mom and sister- a belief that that will will be in the clear right and now there's not any sense of that there's a sense of like that that uh, that what we're leading up to is a war that there is no uh, we're not attempting to like peacefully erase bias we're we're confident now that we have to violently erase by bias yeah. by uh, by, I don't know what I don't, people who are, who think that way, I have no idea what their plan is. I, it does not seem like they're stockpiling nearly enough guns. If they think they're going to violently eliminate bias, I don't want to be around for it. <laughs> right. You know, it's not going to work. That's not, that's not the path. But, but if you try and talk about the path of, of like believing that you can socially uh, uh, collectively eliminate bias. I don't think anybody believes it now and on and on and on all of the things in the seventies and eighties. And I mean, we had, we were living in constant threat of nuclear war, but we had all this hope about science and social action mm -hmm. 
combination of the two, science and social action, it had all this potential to help us. And I think we made, we made tremendous progress. It's just that, you know, that our, that our bad behavior caught up to us, but also we lost faith. We lost faith in, faith in one another. We lost faith that, along that we the way. Could, you're saying we lost faith that, that we could do anything. We lost faith that we could do anything. We, lo- we completely lost faith in institutions, even though we were in the process of modifying them and have successfully modified them compared to what institutions are, what they were in the 60s. We have made tremendous modifications to the way we do business. And I'm talking about in terms of both environmentally and socially, like the way we do business, the way the law operates, the way the police think, the way the government conducts its business, the way we think of of uh, the earth as a as an organism, but the also the way we think of the earth as a society and mm-hmm. as a machine. Mm-hmm. Like we, it's so we think of it so differently, and that's entirely because of the work that we did, the work that the boomers did, the work that we did as Generation X, the work that the that Generation Y has done. Like we've changed, we've changed the world. I see this a lot in in the course of watching Friendly Fire, we've noticed that war movies and, and thrillers that were made in what I think what we think of as the Denzel Washington era, which is, <laughs> you know, the kind of nineties, <laughs> right? The, the, the mid nineties, <laughs> there were all these movies where it'd be a thriller, right? A cop procedural or a, or a, uh, or a submarine movie or something. And Denzel would get cast in a role and there would be no reference to his race. He was not a black cop. He was not the black mayor of San Francisco. He was not a black astronaut. He was just a cop or an astronaut. He was Denzel. And this is, and it's not just Denzel. There were, uh, this is true across all culture in this era that was, you know, like eighties, nineties, and there was a lot going on, right? That was there. That was the crack epidemic had happened. The, the uh, gangster rap was, was culture had culturally changed what hip hop was saying and doing. Um, but there was, it was the attempt to make a post-racial society. Oprah was the richest woman in the world. And we had had, uh, you know, there was, there was all this, uh, all this black culture that was made by blacks and, and was, and like the black community was profiting from it. It wasn't what had traditionally been the American style, which was that black musicians and actors and so forth were being exploited by or were working within a white system. Right. And so all of a sudden it seemed like post-racial society. That's what we've been working toward for all these years. And it's happening here. It is. It's happening. Like we no longer, when you cast a black actor in a movie, they no longer are the black one. <laughs> They're right, right. just the hero, right? Yeah, the hero yeah, of the character in the, in, in like all the other characters. And it was a small thing, but at the time it felt like we had, we were over a hump somehow mm-hmm. that we were in a world now where race was not playing the same, you know, like ultimately deciding role in every choice. It was not a question of, and the thing is that that was a, that was a fantasy clearly, or it was not a fantasy. It was only the, a small side of the, of the world, but it was, it was real progress, right? It was, it was equivalent to Sidney Poitier, Mm -hmm. um, there were, there, stuff had happened. It wasn't just that stuff was happening. It was that stuff had happened. And the, the thing that happened in, in the the last 10 years, which was that through the proliferation of cameras, we realized that that had not changed the material, like, um, conditions of life for most African Americans in the United States. And that, you know, that for most 
American blacks, they, they still, even no matter how affluent they were, no matter how much they were um, it, living in a post-racial society, all they had to do was walk into a jewelry store and they had a very different experience walking into a jewelry store or walking down the street in the middle of the day or whatever than I did or than, than their white friends did. Right. And that awareness, the, the awareness of the gulf, which was always there and which no black American ever was not conscious of, but the awareness of it and our focus on that gulf and our focus on, on just the, the understanding that it's one thing to go to a Denzel movie and say, we're living in a post-racial America, but it's a very different thing to actually achieve that globally right? It seemed that awareness erased all of the progress that we had made in our own minds and imaginations. It had erased the fact that we are so much further than we were in 1950. There's so much hard work we've done that has produced real results that we should be justifiably proud of. And I'm talking about everybody in the United States. I'm talking about everybody that has worked in civil rights, everybody that has made a personal change, everybody that has worked to make institutional change. And in looking at, and in finally sort of having a lens on what it's actually, and the thing is there is no lens on what it's actually like. You cannot know until you, till you live it, but we are, we see it. We talk about it in a different, different ways, right? We're no longer just trying to extend the voting rights act. We're trying to make a world in which you can be black and walk into a jewelry store and they don't uh, lock all the cases. Right. But how you you I mean how you achieve that? It's like it's it was our dream in the seventies and eighties, which was through several generations of educating people differently and changing institutions, we can eradicate bias just by pushing the you know, pushing the borders of it right. a, a little bit every generation until you can be a kid like my daughter that grows up in a world where no one ever refers to somebody as her black friend. Right. And I didn't grow up in that world. When I had a black friend, my, uh, my extremely woke parents were like, oh, you're a black friend. You know, it was just, my dad's best friend was black and he was like, you know, he never, he never forgot to mention it. <laughs> right? right. And his, and judge Tanner would say about my dad, he would say, yeah, my best friend is white. And he did it with a tone, right? He said it very definitely as a, um, as a reference. He, even in the fifties and sixties, like they had a relationship where, where, Judge Tanner could say, uh, could make a kind of reverse affirmative action joke about his relationship with my dad. Yeah. And they would all laugh in a kind of like Sammy Davis Jr. with the Rat Pack kind of way. Right. Which, at, which felt like progress then, right? It felt like, it fe but, but now, we're talking about 50, 60, 70 years later, mm. now that joke would be harder, not easier. You know, it would be less funny now. Yeah. Instead of more funny. Right. When I look at our current situation, I get that feeling of hope again, that 70s and 80s hope that somehow through all of this, we come out the other side with a reordering. And the problem is at the top, we have no guidance right now. You know, at the top, we feel like there's a huge vacuum. If Obama was president right now, it would be such a different universe, right? If Bill Clinton was president, if George W. Bush, and I, I still, until, until six weeks ago, I still thought he was the worst president in history. But, but now it's not that Trump is a bad president. It's just, he's a nothing. There's just nothing there. It, they're just, they're, they're so, they're so wrong and absent and dull. They're just dull with it. People. Um, and this is a time when it would be, I really hope somebody steps forward. I'm so disappointed that Biden 
because he's such a nothing too. Like, why is he not, he's running for president instead of standing up and trying to galvanize the country. And that's boring. And I think it's just because he's tired. You know, if there was somebody that could step into this void and say, rally around my flag. Is it you, and it John? Wasn't, John, is it and you? It wasn't Bernie either. No. Uh, yeah, you know, I wish it were. Yeah. I wish it were me. I wish I had that kind of, like, resilience, like soul resilience to be able to make that kind of sacrifice. And the problem is that you, I think you have to, you have to have a certain kind of personality, a certain kind of soul, and then be willing to sacrifice yourself oh, yeah. in order to stand up and be, and truly be the anchor man. But that's, you know, that's what we need. And if we had it, I think you could rally people. I mean, I made the mistake of, I followed some Twitter thread. Somebody made some innocent comment and I went and, and read the comments and I realized, oh, all of the, like the Bernie crowd that's, that said, if Bernie's not the nominee, then I won't vote or I'm going to vote. You know, yeah, I saw people saying that too. And I do not understand that at all. I went over, I thought that that was gone or I, you know, what's been amazing about this is that a month and a half ago, th- the stuff that we were arguing about on the internet, all of that went away. It's gone now, isn't it? <laughs> and it felt so great. It was yeah. just like, oh, thank God we're not yeah, arguing. We don't have to talk about that crap anymore. But it's still there, right? There's still a whole generation of voters that are like, well, I'm not voting for Biden. It's the exact same things we said about uh, George W. Bush and Al Gore mm-hmm. in 2000. And I 100% made those exact comments. Yeah, There's yeah. no difference between Bush and Gore. Bush and Gore are two sides of the same coin. They're two sides of the capitalist, neoconservative, warmongering, white, East Coast, or, you know, like, like Ivy League elite. And so to vote, if you think, and all of that was directed at, other members of the left, if you think that voting for Gore is better than Bush, then you are, you know, you're living a lie. <laughs> and I voted for Nader proudly. <laughs> and, you know, when I look back at myself, then, like, I 100% understand where I was coming from. And the only, you know, the, the only thing that that sort of scrubbed that naivete out from under my fingernails was the very clear recognition that after September 11, there would have been a huge difference between Bush and Gore. And if Al Gore had been president on September 11th, we would be living in such a markedly different world right now. How, how do you think it would be different? Well, his response to nine 11 would not have been to invade Iraq mm-hmm. that would not have even been on the table because it shouldn't have been. It was irrelevant. It had nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Invading Iraq wouldn't have even been on the list of things. Mm-hmm. The response I think would have been a targeted response, a targeted special forces response to go get bin Laden. And I think they would have gotten him mm-hmm. because they weren't distracted by ramping up for a war, you know, for like a, for like an up tank invasion right. of Iraq. Right, yeah, right. They could have just chased him up into Tora Bora and found him. And there would have been from Al Gore, a sense, a recognition within his class of, um, state department wonks and Ivy league intellectuals, all the people that, that we think are the problem or, or a certain segment of us believes is the problem. Those people would have recognized that there was a tremendous um, gulf between the Muslim world and our world, and they would have, through their capitalism and through their their neo-colonialism, they would have at least recognized that there was another thing to do besides drop bombs. They would have practiced diplomacy. They would have tried to repair uh, the damage they would have, maybe they would not have encouraged the Arab spring or any more than Bush did. Although I think they would have, 
Um, and that Arab Spring happened under Obama. But you know what I mean? Like it's uh, there would have been a diplomatic world that would have been greater than the war making world. Mm -hmm. And I think that the war in Iraq and subsequent war in Afghanistan to oust the Taliban created the environment like a global environment that, uh, that is effectively perpetual war, war ad nauseum that accomplished nothing. I think that did lead to Arab spring and the fallout from that, which is, perpetual war in Syria, which is Islamic state. All those things are direct consequences, not of Osama bin Laden, not of the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, but of George Bush's decision to fight those wars in the way that he decided. Al Gore just wouldn't have done it. He would just wouldn't have done it that way because that just wouldn't have been the way they thought at all because mm -hmm. they were diplomats. Mm -hmm. And they were, the secretary of state was the one that they, that was the job they thought was the top job. Secretary of state in those democratic administrations, that was the top job, not chief of staff of the army, not right. a national security advisor or special advisor to the president. Secretary of the state was the top job. We would like to say thank you very much to Squarespace. Hey. I'm using Squarespace. I'm making a new website. I'm not going to tell you. No, I will not tell you what it is yet, but I'm using Squarespace to create it. Why? Because I'd rather focus on the thing that I want to do than on the website about it. But I need the website to look good. I need people to go to the website and say, wow, nice website, Dan. And I'm going to say, yeah, thanks. It's a great website, but secretly Squarespace is the one. I'm not going to tell them that. And that's what you can get. You can get away with looking like a web developer, designer, rock star. And here's something else that's really important that people don't talk about enough with Squarespace is a lot of the time you're building the site and you're going to hand it over to somebody. You're going to give it to some, maybe you're a, a designer, maybe you're just a Squarespace guru, maybe you're not and you want to become one and you're going to build this site and then you're going to give it to somebody else to put their content in and to run it and whatever. You want that whole process to be easy. You do not want that phone call from somebody that says, how do I update the thing? Squarespace is going to be that soft place for you to fall. You don't need to worry about it anymore. Go crazy. Design the best site with Squarespace that you want to design and then hand it off and they'll be able to update this thing forever because it's all drag and drop. It couldn't be easier. And if they want to make changes to it, they can too. They've got a new way to buy domains built in. They've got analytics that help you grow. They've got a built-in search engine. They've got uh, secure hosting. You don't ever have to patch or update anything. They've got 24-7 award-winning customer support. Do you get what I'm saying? I'm saying you can make it yourself. You can make it stand out. And you can do it all with Squarespace. The URL to go to is squarespace.com slash roadwork. Go there, just going there. Even if you're like, I'm not ready to do anything, that's fine. Go there. It supports the show. Do you want the show to continue? I do. Please go to the URL and look around. You might just say, I need to sign up right now. But when you do sign up, promo code ROADWORK, one word, will get you 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. So one more time, squarespace.com slash ROADWORK supports us. Promo code ROADWORK supports you with 10% off your first website or domain. Thanks very much to Squarespace for making this show possible. And that's all, you know, that's all gone. That's, that was a squandered opportunity. And, and my vote for Nader up here in Washington state wasn't the deciding vote, but my generation's support for Nader, it wasn't even our support for Nader because we believed as, as I read on this comment section, we believed that, you know, that this, these were protest votes and we were going to pull the country to the left by announcing our intentions and by, you know, by forcing the Democrats to take a hard look at themselves. And what we did was force the Democrats out of power. And the Republicans are worse, way worse, way worse, and demonstrably worse. It's not just like theoretically worse, philosophically worse. The version of of uh, just just in terms of whether they think the secretary of the state is the top job or not that alone makes them worse mm -hmm. 
in every respect in terms of whatever. This hope that we used to have that we were on our way to creating a global world. You know, and 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 the WTO, the idea that the way we were going to create a, a global world was through economics. We were going to create a global economy first. We hated that so much. That was such a neocon, like conservative Democrat mentality. Right. Oh, we're going to open up the markets and we're going to reduce barriers to trade and manufacturing. And that is going to bring freedom to the world. It was just so cynical. We hated it and we fought it. But it was at its core somewhere way up the chain there was an idealism there an idea that if you opened all those markets if you reduced those barriers to trade that trade would open china and trade would open saudi arabia and if we could just get those denzel movies into theaters around the world <laughs> That would change everything. Yeah, then the government of Indonesia <laughs> would wouldn't be able to be repressive because people could see. You know, it was the argument. It was the Khrushchev argument. We were fighting a war of toasters. Wait, I haven't heard that term before. That expression. What does that mean? Well, I just invented it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what do you mean by <laughs> what do you mean by that? Because it sounds it sounds real. I mean, I guess it is real. What I, Israel, what I mean is like when, when Khrushchev came to, um, to the world's fair, yeah. uh, and walked around with Nixon and Nixon showed him all of the, you know, all of the toasters basically, um, I guess it was not, uh, it wasn't a world's fair. It was, um, Nixon went to Moscow okay. and they had, and they, and they walked around and they were looking at, uh, there was an, um, there was a, a, like an American demonstration okay. of what we were, what we were capable of. Look at all the toasters that we can make. And you know, this was the, that era that, that late fifties era of, uh, the, you know, the housewife now is freed from her labors oh, yeah. by all these, appliances. these modern it's about conveniences. appliances. That's right. And now she she's she's like liberated to live a sparkling life of of cocktail party conversation. And, right. Like she can she can novels. sit with her friends and, and they can do their nails together while the dishes are washed by an autonomous machine in the other room. Right. And and so Nixon was vice president and he was trying to, you know, he was trying to make this argument to Khrushchev that capitalism was better and to, and make this argument to the world. Capitalism was better than, uh, than communism because look at how, you know, look at what it produces. Look what our, what our, how our society is, um, is making the world a better place. And Khrushchev pushed back and, um, and said, you know, how is this toaster going to feed the world's poor? It's not. And what the world needs is like the global communist revolution because it's, um, it's, it benefits the greater good or benefits the greatest, the greatest good. And it just, it felt like a, it felt like that argument has been the American argument for a hundred years if we just show people how fun our all school dances are they're going to try and adopt our way of life and and open their markets to us and that will be a um that will be a, a cascading freedom wave mm -hmm. because if you buy an american toaster then when it stops working you buy a second american toaster and pretty soon you want american rock and roll and Denzel movies, and pretty soon you're releasing your political dissidents and you're, you're, uh, legalizing marijuana. And then we have a, then we have a world, a global world where we all agree that, 
America makes the best toasters. Mm. And you know, that's the kind of, that's the, that's the American chauvinism, right? That we want the, we want the world to be united behind the idea that our toasters are best beyond, beyond that, you know, we want there to be an end to war. Uh, but we want to keep selling the world guns. We want to, we want there to be only fun wars <laughs> that we win and our friends win only bad guys die and everybody else gets a toaster. 